by reading our passage today, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll talk about what Paul is getting at here in this passage. So Galatians chapter 1, last week we went through verses 1 through 5, so today my goal is to go through verses 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Let me read it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this is your word, and we ask that uh, through Paul's message to the Galatians that we would uh, be reminded of the precious gospel that we have, that these would not just be more things to know, but rather, God, truths about you and about how you have rescued men that we should take to heart, that should produce in us thanksgiving and gratitude and joy and hope. And so, Lord, I pray as we consider counterfeit gospels, as we consider those who add or subtract from the gospel of Christ, that we would be mindful of what your word says and desire to glorify you in it. Uh, So, Lord, uh, be praised in this time, be with us, help these students to lean in and engage to what your word is saying. Uh, We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Um, when my wife was pregnant with um, our third daughter, um, she, I don't know if you know, but when technically when people get pregnant, supposedly there's like, these certain cravings that they have. Um, my mom said that when she was pregnant with me, that she always craved pancakes. And so, as a little kid, I always got called like the pancake kid, like, because when I was, when I was pregnant with me, I liked pancakes. But my wife, pregnant with her daughter, Anna... I had to have ice cream every single night. Just maybe why she's so crazy, right? Too much sugar in the womb or something. Um, my wife loves ice cream, and her favorite kind is mint and chocolate chip, okay? So there's this random time, halfway through the pregnancy, she's like, Aaron, run out of ice cream. I don't care that it's 1030 at night. Go and get some. Okay, fine. And it's like, before we like we get like the dryers kind of ice cream, or we would get like this and that, and I don't know, we didn't really pay attention to too much the kind of ice cream, kind of like what's on sale and what, get the most bang for your buck. Although we would never get like the big kind of like jug of it because it's just not that good. Um, so anyways, I go into Fred Meyer and I, I'm looking around and I see this Tillamook and they have like a deal. It was like the cheapest of the time. It was two for five, right? So I'm like, she likes some chocolate chip, and I get it, and I buy the ice cream. The rest of the story is history, right? In that, she's like, this is the best ice cream I've ever had. This, like, this is it. The, there is no better mint chocolate chip that you can buy in the store. 
And so one time, I want to save some money, I get dryers. And she's like, what is this crap? <laughs> no way. Go back and get Tillamook. And, and now, to this day, we have this, like, unhealthy, because um, they get you, right? They, like, they get it on sale so you could try it, and then you realize that you can't go back to another because it's the best. It's, like, the true flavor of ice cream that you should enjoy, and now it's, like, like a lot more expensive than most other ice creams. And the illustration here is that when you experience the true gospel, you can't resort to the other things that you had in life. And I know every illustration is imperfect in a way, because you're like, well, yeah, Tillamook's good, but other ice cream is still pretty good, too, and I'd eat that, too. But, but the, the illustration I'm trying to make here is that when, when you actually finally get something that is good and great and the best, anything less than that is never good enough anymore. It can't really satisfy. It can't do the job intended. And so for Paul, we talked about last week that he spends a lot of time in this book of Galatians defending his apostleship. That he has to say, I am not just some secondary dude who some guy named you know, Peter kind of took me under his wing and then told me what to say. I received my gospel message directly from Christ himself. And that matters because if my apostleship is in question, the gospel is in jeopardy. And so last week we, we began looking at Galatians by understanding that the whole book is central around this one big idea. The importance of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, that we believe what has been told to us. That we do not add to the gospel message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We do not subtract from it, but we let it be what it has been given to us, revealed in God's word. And so, the passage here today is a lot like someone who had something really good, like Tillamook ice cream, and then added poison to it. And they thought it was good. And I wonder, for, for us as Christians, um, the challenges we face when, we are, when we're just met with um, more kind of theoretical values and teachings and, and things that are, like, not as practical. And so what do I mean by that? Most of us who have kind of grown, in, grown up in church, grown up in Christian families, or who come to church a lot, have this sense of where we're used to people just telling us things to believe... And then saying, go and do this now. But what happens when we're being taught something that isn't as practical in nature? It's more kind of like you need to know these things in order to be a healthy Christian. What happens, it kind of just stays in our head. It doesn't sink down into our hearts and and actually produce in us some sense of joy or patience. It doesn't produce in us some type of of, of firmness or, or winsomeness. That Christians should have. It just becomes another thing to know. But Paul, he'll get to it a little later, right now is kind of in his formal way of talking about the gospel. 
It's like his theoretical doctrine theology that you have to know before you really begin to see how it impacts your life and it's more practical. So chapters 5 and 6 are kind of those like the fruit of the Spirit, how to treat others when they're wrong, how to restore one who is less spiritual than you, all of those practical things. But right now, he, he wants to show how if you leave the gospel... If you leave the message received from Paul and the other apostles, that you have a recipe for, dis- for disaster. And so let me kind of just share with you the main central issue that this passage is raising, okay? And, and hopefully it's in a way that it's memorable to you. So listen very carefully. If you are in the sixth grade or seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, through whatever grade, no matter how old you are, I pray that you would never forget this one thing. You ready? Christ plus anything ruins everything. Christ plus anything ruins everything. And what do we mean by that? That means if I am trusting in Christ as my Savior, if I know that He is the only way that can make me right with God, my justification... But, to that, I add, if I kind of just do some religious things, God will be kind of happy with me. What have we just done? We've added Christ, the message of the gospel, plus what? Our own works. And that is a recipe that ruins everything. It is only Christ, okay? And so Paul wants to show us two things of what it looks like when we desert the gospel, two things that we need to know of when we leave away from just trusting in Jesus for our salvation. When we add something to our faith, Paul says there's two things. Look down at verse 6. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now, really quick, um, a lot of times when Paul would write his letter, he would start off with a tip, like a typical Paul, an apostle to, you know, the saints in Colossae, and he would say, grace and peace to you, and we had a little bit of that in verse 3. And then, right after his formal introduction, he would kind of turn into thanks. In most of his letters, he would start off by saying, I am thankful for you. Every time I remember you in my prayers, I give thanks to God for your faith and your ability to suffer for the gospel. By virtue, Paul always starts off his letters with a sense of thanksgiving. But what does he say here? I am astonished. The word actually means like aggravated, mad, upset, disappointed. I'm astonished. So let me ask you a question. If if you write a letter to someone, say, greetings to you. I, I hope all things are well. I cannot believe that you would... What's the tone of the letter that you're kind of feeling here? It's not like, I just hope life is really good for you. He is, he's kind of annoyed. He's mad. He's frustrated. And here's the thing, though. A lot of people talk about how Paul, in a way, is being gracious but firm. He's not saying how, you know, like sometimes when you get something wrong in class or you ask a really dumb question or you maybe say something really obvious and people are like, what, are you dumb or something? 
Like, okay, thanks, Captain Obvious. Like, there's a way in which, you know, people kind of will poke at us to make us feel inferior. But Paul here, he actually doesn't even put the pressure too much on them. He, in a way, is being gracious but firm about the gospel that he preaches. And so he says, I'm, I'm mad, I'm, I'm annoyed, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm puzzled. I'm, I'm literally confused on how you can so quickly run away from the gospel that I preach to you. So again, some of the context here is Paul was traveling in Asia Minor around the Turkey area. He planted these churches. He taught them the gospel. They, with excitement and joy, he says in the, in the letter, that they, re, they, re, they received grace, that they realized that they could do nothing to earn God's favor. But what happened? Some other people started coming and saying, yeah, isn't, isn't being a Christian the greatest thing? However, if you really want to be a good Christian, this is what you'll do. You'll get circumcised. You'll, you'll obey. You'll just do a bunch of good things. Tim Keller, I think, is really helpful in this. And he says that someone can just as easily lose their faith in Christ by obeying and doing good than someone who says, I want nothing to do with religion. I'm going to live my life and do whatever I want, forget you and all your rules and all your religion. Do you know what he says? He says, the person who seeks to do a lot of religious good, read your Bible, pray, worship, mission trips, can just as easily lose their faith, their good standing in Christ, as someone who says, I want nothing to do with God. Why is that? Because if you remember, last week we talked about how the book of Galatians is a book for recovering Pharisees, recovering legalists, who say, if I just kind of do some good things, God is happy with me. Like, guys, listen for a second. It is so common for me, when I talk to people about religion, you know, like, I'll meet some random guy. He'll, he'll ask me what I do. I'm a pastor. Immediately that opens up some door of whether they want to talk about it or they don't. And I cannot tell you how many people say, well, you know what? I'm just a good person. You know, I, I pray a lot on my own, but I don't really go to church. And, and I just believe that God can accept anyone who just cares about others. Right? Just like, I'm just, I'm just going to try really hard. I'm going I'm to be really good. Do you, know what, do you know what they're saying? I have Jesus, but I also have the things that I do. And because of that, I'll get accepted. And so Tim Keller says, no, 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 no. Just because you do good things doesn't mean you're any different than the person who rejects God completely. Because this is why the Christian gospel is different. Every other religion says... If I obey, if I do good, if I obey my parents, if I read my Bible, if I pay attention in Sunday school or church, then God will accept me. I just have to try really hard. This is what the gospel says. I'm accepted because of what Christ has done on my behalf. Because of God's grace being poured out to me. And that is why I want to obey. Do you see the difference 
religion says, if I do good things, then I'll be accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted not because of anything that I have done, only because of what Christ has done, and therefore, I want to obey. And so the first thing that Paul says about when we leave the gospel, he says, you're not actually leaving my teaching. If you walk away from this room and you don't believe what I'm saying, you're not disagreeing with what Aaron is saying. What does he say there? He says in verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him. And who is him? The one who called you in the grace of Christ. So when we leave the gospel message, when we, when we like to think that I don't like Aaron's preaching or his teaching, or I don't like this church, or I don't like what my parents are saying, I, I, I don't like what my friends are saying. When we leave what the biblical gospel is teaching us, listen, we are not deserting one man's opinion, but we are deserting God. And that's why Paul is so astonished. Isn't it fascinating that people feel uncomfortable around Christians because they feel judged? Right? I feel like we've all encountered people maybe like that who say, well, I don't like going to church because they all kind of make me feel bad or they, they judge me. And you want to know something? I think a lot of churches have failed at that. They, they have literally judged people by based on what they're wearing, how they talk, their attitudes, their decisions they made the prior week. But why, why is that ironic that Christians would look at other people and kind of think less of them for the things they do and say? Because we of all people know that we are sinners saved by grace. What am I, I'll be honest with you, I'm 28, I'm a young guy, uh, trying to be a leader in a church full of a lot of people older than me. And when I talk to a lot of struggling Christians, do you want to know one thing that I find in common? Is they all live in isolation. We don't find community with people. We don't, we don't have the ability to share our struggles and our sins and confess with one another. And I ask them why. Why is it hard to find another Christian and to share what you're really struggling with? Because I think there's been this, this upset in the church, this, this disappointment that, that we kind of shame people, we make them feel bad, because they're doing something. And so, again, to, to quote Tim Keller, the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So when we, as a church, make church to be this thing where you have to look really good, that you have to be perfect, that you have to wear your best Sunday clothes, that if you do anything wrong or if you, if you confess the wrong things that you kind of get looked at weird, what are we doing? We're just kind of creating a museum of people that just look really great. It looks like you have all your stuff together. It looks like you guys have no problems. But anyone knows that you can just put on a mask. You can just look really great. 
And then what about, what if someone comes in and they are hurting and they do have really big questions and struggles? And what if they do doubt the existence of God? Do we give them a safe place to actually share that with people? And so for us, when we look at Paul's words, and he's saying we're not just deserting a teaching, When we leave the gospel behind, we are deserting God himself. I'm convinced that that none of us will fully be able to grasp everything there is about the gospel. Now, that's like borderline heretical, okay? Like, borderline. It's not heretical, but it's borderline. And what do I mean by that? I think, obviously, we can know enough of the gospel that it saves us and it transforms us and it gives us the power to live the Christian life. And and we can know it confidently and share it. But will we be able to ever fully and exhaustively know every detail of the gospel? Never. Not even in eternity. You know, the Bible describes the gospel as this mystery in the center of the universe. I think there's a sense in which as us as finite people will never be able to fully know this mystery in the center of the universe. But here's the thing. God's word is clear that when we add anything to Christ, we have a recipe for disaster. Imagine you're at a restaurant. I, I, forget, I was doing some research on, some, on this illustration. I, couldn't, I forget the word now. But there's this one type of poison where if you have one drop to something, it'll kill like a hundred adults. Like it's so lethal. And, and, it, and, it, and the, the point I was making, it's, more, it's far more lethal than even cyanide. Okay? So this type of poison, okay? So what if you're at a, a nice restaurant? You have this beautiful meal, and you're paying like $40 for this one entree. And, and I just said, hey, can I, can I just put one drop of poison on your food? Just, just a tiny bit. Is that okay with you? It's just, a, I mean, it's a smidgen. Say, so of course not. I don't put poison on my food. But do you, do you see what, what the effect of even a tiny bit of poison or dysfunction can do? disastrous consequences. And the same thing happens when we add just a tiny bit to our own justification. It's like adding poison that it ruins everything, right? The second thing is this. Look down at verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, it's kind of interesting, in the Greek he has a play on words. He says, um, there is this gospel, but not that there is another gospel. And what he's doing, he's kind of saying, it's kind of like this, but it's not this. So in essence, what these guys were doing, and we have to do a little bit of mirror reading, is imagine someone who looks really good, who is very successful, who speaks powerfully. And can kind of, you know how people sometimes talk and they give you goosebumps with the power and like they, they lower their voice. And maybe they give some like sad story and they just kind of like get this inspirational rise out of you. And they're saying all the right things. 
and they're winsome. That's a little bit of what these people are doing. They may, they may even be sincere in what they believe. Like they're not even trying to purposely mislead you. But here's the thing. That does not mean that they're excused from damnation and judgment. Like as a pastor, here's what I want to tell you. This might sound a little weird, but I want you to take it to heart. Trust me when I say that you can't always trust me. Trust me when I say you can't always trust me. That sometimes I can be wrong. That sometimes when I should be caring and praying and leading that maybe I'm inward and I'm focused on my own self and sin. Maybe like you come and ask for advice and I give you the wrong advice. Like, what if I explain something in a way that isn't true? Not that I would purposely ever do that. But that's why I have to say, as a man, I have to say, trust me when I say that you can't always trust me. But Paul here, although defending his apostleship as one sent by Jesus himself, says, listen, if anyone were to say something different than the gospel that you have in your Bible, it's not another gospel. See, a way to maybe explain this, okay, say you have two computers. One is a PC and one is a what? A Mac. So you say, someone comes, I, I own a Mac, and someone says, hey, Aaron, do you like your computer? Oh, I love this computer, and I, and I want another one. I'm, a matter of fact, I'm going to get one just like it. Imagine if you had a PC. Do you like this? No, I, I don't really like this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get another one. But, but when you say another one, what do you mean by it? Do you mean another one of the same kind? Or do you mean another one of, I'm going to get a Mac now? And what Paul do, he is saying with his play on words is saying that anyone who tries to peddle at you something different than what I have told you about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, it's not just a type of different kind of, you can have this one or that one. It's this one isn't even a thing. And so I think that the application for us here is this. That we should be just like Paul who warn people and tell them of their faulty thinking that when they think that they can earn their own religious standing, their own right standing with God, that we would say you are separated from Christ and you have no inheritance. And it is only, as the reformers would say, by grace alone, through faith alone, which is by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by the authority of Scripture alone, can we be saved. How many of us, I mean, you know what's fascinating? Look at verse 8. But even if we were an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Do you want to, I, I could think of like three religions at the top of my head that started with someone alone and an angel came to them and they gave them something that added to the gospel of scripture. The first one happened 
in the 6th century with a guy named Muhammad who said that the angel Gabriel came to him and gave him the five tenets of the religion of what? Islam. Another guy who lived in North America, Joseph Smith, believed that an angel came and gave him two golden tablets and said that the Christian... And you know what's fascinating? Mormons will actually use this passage in favor of their teaching. They'll say that the Christian has got the gospel distorted and that we needed to add something in order to make the gospel relevant and clear again. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, listen, listen. It's not the messenger. It's the message. Even we, even if, if, if James, Peter, John, all of the disciples, even if we or, or some heavenly mystic being came down and said something to you, let them be, and the word in Greek is anathema, damned, eternally accursed. That is how strong he says it. What does that mean for us? That we must always take a hard stand and diligence of relying on the biblical gospel. That we can never add or earn our own standing with God. Like, let, me, let me say something for a quick second. It's kind of offensive to say to someone that you are so bad that you're completely unable to help yourself. Right? It's not even a message that's like easy for me to say. But that's the message of the gospel, and that's why it is so good, because it's true, and because God, out of his love for us, even while we were still sinners, he would what? He would die for us. And so Paul says, he goes on, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And it was this passage, verses 1 through 10, that allowed the reformers in the Protestant Reformation to, to rediscover the heart of the gospel. To rediscover that, listen, if we ever think that we can just add a little bit to our standing with God, we have turned away from God himself. That, listen, guys, this is the problem with every single human, that we think that we can just do it ourselves. That we think that we have just the power and the ability and the right to solve our own problems. And Paul, Paul would look at so many churches these days and he would say the same thing. I am astonished that you would relate to God based on your performance. So do you want to know the good news in all of this? That whether right now you feel bored towards God, or you feel apathetic towards God, or you're confused about God, or whether you're mad at God, whatever it is, whatever you're feeling towards God right now, that His love and His grace for you never changes. That we relate to God solely based on grace. And let me say something again. 
We never relate to God based on our feelings about God. So even though I may have done some things in my past that I feel guilty and shameful of, and because of that I I feel some distance between me and God, I never relate to Him based on those feelings. And this is why Paul would pull out his hair and say, I, I, I'm confused, I'm, I'm utterly confounded at why you would leave him who what? Who called you in the grace of Christ. Paul did not preach Christ because he wanted himself to be honored and glorified. And let me be very clear. No person... No Christian, no pastor can ever be someone who lives in faith and preaches Christ for their own oughtness. And see, these false teachers, they, they, they were eloquent, they were sweet, they were nice. And because of that, they wanted people to like them. And if I am ever up here and I want to preach because I want people to like me or because I want people to think I'm awesome... I am, I am not preaching the biblical gospel. So Paul says, for, now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he adds that to say this. Listen, if you want to know the real reason of why my gospel is true, it's because I have never preached to you to glorify myself. We want to please Christ. And how do we please Christ? By making him known. And how do we make him known? By showing this one main central theme that I hope you guys never forget. You ready for it? Christ plus anything ruins everything. My, my, my goal, my desire is that every Christian, and not just every Christian, everybody, and especially you who I can see face to face, would relate to God solely because of Jesus. That he would be enough. That Jesus, no matter if you did all of the sinning that you possibly could out this last week, that you would look to Christ. The last thing I'll say, I was talking with a friend recently. And uh, he's in a different tradition of Christianity. He's not really evangelical. But he was talking about the art and the, the discipline of confession. And in, and in his um, way of Christianity, the way they do confession is, is he will out loud pray to God and confess his sins while a, uh, the priest listens to him. And the priest doesn't say anything. The priest doesn't offer in, make sure you do this. He just listens to the prayer. And when, when, when they're done confessing their prayer out loud, the priest says this one thing. Go now and be done with your sins. And he's not saying, don't go do those sins anymore. What he's saying is, is those sins that you just confessed to God, they're over with. God forgave them. Don't run back to them. Don't, don't, don't even worry about them. Don't even think about them. Because you know why? They're resolved. It's taken care of. And then that is such a beautiful picture of what we have in Christ. That when you confess your sins... Be done with them. Don't be haunted by them. Don't, don't think that, that God is looking back three weeks ago and saying, hey, remember when you did this? It's a sense of, I confess, God forgives, and the slate is always clean because of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word.
Pray, Lord, that we continue to know more and more of what the gospel is. Help us, Father, to see how there is no other gospel, that there is only grace, there is only the gospel received um, from your words to the apostles. So, Lord, I pray that these students would come to see the centrality of Jesus in everything. Lord, be glorified and praised. In your name we pray. Amen.